0: questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place
1: to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas. At VeritasRadio.com I'm your host, Mel Fabregas And I sincerely thank you For joining me once again And if this is your first time Or your truth journey brought you here Welcome home And by now you know your way around Just click on the subscribe button Of our website Subscribe and you'll get your login immediately Which will give you access to Hundreds of hours of truth Why wait? Subscribe today and like our computers, our life sometimes needs an upgrade. But we don't know what upgrade to give it. But listen to Sunitas, and I guarantee you, you will give your life an upgrade. And if you want to get in touch with me, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a recommendation or a suggestion, or simply just want to write to me, I'd love to hear from you. Just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. Yes, we are all victims of our paradigms. What we don't know can and will hurt us. Our ignorance has turned us into the slaves of our own delusions, where ignorance isn't bliss, but a form of massive self-deception. No, we are not safe. No, the danger won't go away if we choose to ignore it. And yes, you will experience a shift in perception. The world isn't as it seems. The map is not complete. It never was. Tonight, we discuss politics, banking, money, education, health, and more from a very different perspective. If you choose to listen tonight, you will do so at your own risk, because after all, you're a victim too. You just might not know it. But I personally refuse to engage in victimhood mentality. I refuse to give in our power or my devotion to anything or anyone that is why we discuss what others refuse to e- refuse or ignore and i'm glad you're with us tonight so we can enlighten our path to the truth tonight's special guest is leonardo wild an author director and screenwriter with 11 books and 200 published articles as well as 42 produced scripts although he wears many hats writing has been his livelihood and passion since the age of 12. Currently, the CEO and co-owner of a company dedicated to environmental solutions, Wilde has traveled extensively, sailed across the Atlantic and the Pacific, was the skipper of a $1 $1 million yacht at the age of 24 in New Zealand, and in 1989 survived a cyclone Harry, a category four. He walked three times over the Andes into the Amazon jungle with native Indians, took part in gold survey expeditions in Ecuador's rainforest, cycled across South America, built wooden houses, advised Ecuador's central bank on currency design. These and many other experiences are invariably being weaved into his writing. His website is leonardowild.com, which is also linked at ours. And Leonardo is, in my opinion, truly a Renaissance man, and he joins us directly from Ecuador. Hello, Leonardo. Welcome to Veritas. How are you?
0: Hi, Mel. Hello. How are you doing? Hello, everybody.
1: Excellent. At first, I must ask you, I'm happy to hear your voice, but every time I speak with my friends in Ecuador, Great Caton and others, you now, I'm always wondering, did you feel the tremor this morning? Another big earthquake wasn't there.
0: Yeah, we had one around 3 a.m., and uh, I was wondering whether I should get up or not. I have a pretty well-built house that should stand, I hope, an eight or eight and a half, if not more. But my wife woke up, and she started to scream and run out with the children, so we <laughs> all went out. And then we had one at six, uh, 6.8 uh, at the London, uh, nearly noon uh, today, again, another one. They say these are aftershocks, but I don't quite believe it.
1: What do you think is really happening? Because I, I've seen a lot, you know, be, years ago we had Chile with a lot of earthquakes. Now we have Ecuador. What What's really going on? Not to get too conspiratorial right from the beginning.
0: Which version do you want?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Your version. I, I
0: think that, I mean, uh, the version that uh, most people and uh, current geological theory uh, would bring is that uh, you have the Nazca plate as going under the... In this case, it's not really the South American plate, but the Caribbean plate, even though it's in South America. I can tell you more about that a bit later. Um, And because it moves at a certain rate per year, it doesn't actually manage to go under it. Every so often, you have to have uh, a release of this energy. And I heard over 20 years ago that they should expect an 8.5 to a 9, which is like uh, 10 times more powerful than the one we had on 7.8. It's an algorithmic, uh, uh, you know, uh, scale, basically. And um, I'm going to turn this phone off because (laughs) I didn't realize I had to turn it off. Okay, so basically what happens is that when these uh, plates shift, uh, whatever makes them shift, the energy gets released and then everything shakes, you know. Uh, In in our case, I mean, the 6.7 and a 6.8 we had today – we would need 10 of those to release the energy of the one we had about a month ago. So uh, in, we would need 10 of the ones from a month ago to actually release most of the energy which is in the plate at the, at the time. So we could expect more of these to come.
1: Can we find some patterns on these you know, after aftershocks or earthquakes? Can we actually predict the next big one time-wise and location-wise?
0: Uh, not really. I mean, we're talking about complex systems here and uh, you may find a general pattern, but uh, prediction would mean a specific uh, location and timing for that. In general terms, the pattern is that these things happen over a course of uh, dec- decades, you know, and uh, if you happen to to be in that decade, you'll probably get one of those. Uh, the last really big one happened in nine. 1904, I think it was, that caused a tsunami that killed people in Japan and killed like 1,500 people around the world due to the tsunami. It was a 9 2, I forget exactly. Yeah. Well, 100 years ago. The other thing is that we have the, well, a few things that people don't really know is that we have the megafault what they call the Guayaquil-Caracas megafold. It goes from the Gulf of Guayaquil all the way to Caracas, which makes San Andreas Fault look like a small one. And that one hasn't gone off in a long time, and I can actually look out the window right now and look at it and see it. It's not far from where I live.
1: Well, it's not that Caracas needs any more problems right now. They're under martial law, and uh, all it takes is an earthquake to just uh, tip the scale as we see it there. They don't need it anymore. But now going back to your work, your latest book, you're an author. You're reading many books, Mm -hmm. uh, the Galapagos uh, Agenda, which is a paradigm shift thriller. Now, my question to you first is, are you really writing fiction or is it faction?
0: Commercially, you would call it fiction. But when you read it, you may change your opinion. Your part about the novel as well. <laughs> um, the events that I describe are fictitious events in terms of the actual storyline. But, uh, what inspired me are real uh, life events and, uh, other research that has taken me to try to write in a, you know, fictitious way. Some of the things that are going on today for various reasons. You know, one of them is that. Most uh, people will not read faction or nonfiction unless they have an interest in the subject matter. <clears throat> and, um, they will actually, many will read fiction, you know, uh, without even expecting much. So the title and, uh, what you will see in the novel will not really prepare you for anything that's in it, except some general line about, you know, corporate, a world corruption and, and stuff like that. But as you read it, the idea is that without you realizing it, by the time you as an uh read as a reader, when you finish the novel, you will have shifted hopefully your paradigm about a specific uh thing. In this case, uh the topic would be politics and the profile of people in positions of power.
1: And we'll get back to this because it's almost like an arc with every book that you write. You're trying to shift everybody's mindset in that way and waking people up that that way. But just you're new on Veritas. This is your, your maiden voyage with me today to give a perspective to the listeners who don't know who you are. Let's begin with, from the beginning. Who's Leonardo? the Wild? How did you wind up in Ecuador, your family and so on?
0: Well, my grandfather... Uh, was Swiss, and he came to Ecuador in 1936 with a bunch of Swiss friends, uh, <clears throat> escaping the economic difficulties they had there pre-war, pre-World War II. Ecuador was offering uh, free land at the moment. Uh, they didn't say where it was, so they came all in, in hopes to have a better life down here. And it turns out that the lands they were be- being given was uh, actually land that uh, nobody lived there, uh, not even Native Indians, because it was harsh environments. In this case, on the slopes of the Andes towards the coastal plains, really humid, really steep, and actually some people didn't really make it. Uh, some returned to to Switzerland, a few stayed. And my father was born in Quito, in uh, uh, yeah, in, in the city here. Uh, back then it was a small city. Now it's a metropolis. And uh, so he's Ecuadorian, Swiss Ecuadorian. Um, when my parents uh, got to get can talk talk about more about that if you're interested. But when my parents uh, decided to you know marry, my mother was uh, German. She passed away about uh, last November. Um Sorry, who that. And she, yeah, and she came to Ecuador when she was 22 in a banana freighter to marry my father. Uh, who was basically living here with his father, who was at the time running a sawmill for Balsa Wood. They were married for five years. They were doing yoga back then and other you know, activities to try to lead a better life, always searching. And uh, with no children for five years, they decided to maybe go and study something in New York. And I messed up their plans when they arrived there within that <laughs> year I was born. I keep on saying that I'm the cause of the second uh, big blackout in New York or something like that, or vice versa. I don't know. (laughs) And uh, then they decided not to have a child in the city, in in the States, because the environment is not appropriate for that. And they went to Puerto Rico, where my father had a scholarship. He was studying theology.
1: Is that right? I didn't know that part.
0: Yeah, he was studying theology. He went to study psychology, but there were no... Uh, scholarships for that. So he ended up studying theology. And um, they studied there, you know, stayed there for three years, three and a half years. And uh, then he graduated in Cambridge, in, in Boston. And then uh, they moved to Colombia for a year where he was, you know, uh, evangelic, not evangelical, uh, episcopal, epi, epi, uh, how do you call it? Episcopalian. Episcopalian. Yeah. Um, and then to Ecuador. And then he had a bit of argument with the Bishop here and ended up leaving the church and started with my uncle and uh, some American investors, an organic farm, actually Hacienda, a bigger one, 520 hectares, which for Ecuador is big, back in the early 70s when nobody spoke or knew about organic or biofuel or any of that. But it so happened that during the that, that decade, that's when the whole... Uh, you know, first world banking scam started. Uh, and the By the way,
1: 522 was, acres, about 1,300, I'm sorry, 522 hectares. hectares it's about acres. 1,300 acres.
0: Yes, something like that. It's it's okay. I mean, it's. It, I know that in the States you have uh, locations where you have farms that are almost as big as Ecuador, but for here it's quite big. <laughs> right. <laughs> So then they imported 52 pure Holstein cows from Canada by plane. Two of them died because of the altitude. We're talking about 8,000 feet high altitude for the farm. And uh, they were actually working 24-7, preparing the ground, because it was a type of ground called kangawa, which is really, really hard soil. Nothing grew on it. They planted 25,000 trees to be able to, uh, you know, Bring this totally barren land to be productive. and just as they were starting with the you know biogas project and and all that uh, the bank basically took the took the whole hacienda because they said they would give a loan and then they said no by the time they were so indebted, it was one of those tricks they were le- doing with uh, the third world all over the place, you know uh,
1: calling the notes.
0: Yeah just saying basically yeah yeah we're going to give you the loan and you get, you keep on getting a loan that will be then refinanced with their long term loan and then they said no sir we won't give it to you and you won't have the money to pay for it
1: so now we want it back uh oh, collateral
0: yeah you know, that's what they do you know they they want a collateral and um it's just out of the book uh you know the confessions of economic hitman at the same time more, more or less you know and uh, so they they then started an alternative educational project uh, called the Pestalozzi kindergarten nothing to do with Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi schools in, in in the world it was just a name that my father being Swiss background uh, decided to use that instead of Maria Montessori which was what he wanted <laughs> right um my mother had been studying since i was a child a year old uh Maria Montessori, and he began taking the courses uh, Maria Montessori courses in Britain to become an instructor and a a teacher in that method. You know, so basically, education and alternative uh, farming and all that has been really part of my my life. uh, You know, my regular paradigm.
1: Uh, How many languages do you speak?
0: uh, Well, German a little bit. English a little bit and oh, uh, Spanish. Come on now. Yeah, uh, I mean, I learned English when I was 18. I didn't know English before, wow. even though I have an American passport. I was living here in Ecuador, and and I learned when I went sailing to Tahiti on a you know American run sailboat. And then started writing in English. I didn't write in English before.
1: And when you and I were speaking a, a few days ago, we were discussing your family and so on. And now that you're saying that truly what you wanted was the Montessori method, which your father created with a different name. But you told me that you took your children or you didn't take your children to school. You're actually um, basically educating them yourself. Can you explain that?
0: Well, the, it's not that we educate themself, ourselves. What happened is that my parents started school like in 1977 uh, near Quito. And uh, the school grew and from three children at had, had 180 some years later. And my daughter, Miranda, who is now 17, she went to it in kindergarten. And then my second son went to it as well. But then they shut the school down for various reasons. Uh, one of them, the whole thing with economy. economy. Uh, then the politics and the different changes. The government was breaking basically the agreements they had with the school, alternative school what they call an experimental school. And so they decided to close that, and they went to another project called the the CEPAS, which is uh, in Spanish for uh, Centers for Autonomous Activities. And so it's not that we had them homeschooled. They're basically prepared environments where the children play with different things in a non-directive way. There is no teaching going on. There are no exams. Uh, There are no... uh, Like curriculum is that they have to follow by a certain time. This is a different type of education. They call it non-directive education.
1: It's more the guidance, letting the kids go, but with some guidance, let them learn on their own.
0: Yes, yes. I mean, that's what uh, we do all the time anyway. Uh, It's like you have a plant and – you, want, you don't tell a plant how to grow, when to give fruit. Everything is inside the plant. They know it, it knows basically genetically and by other means when it should sprout, when it should grow this, and when it should give fruit. And uh, we are in a similar way as human beings, more complex than that, but it's quite similar. If you give an environment to children uh, where they get everything they need according to the development stages, Piaget comes to mind. Then they will actually uh, be always doing what they need to do biologically at the time. And if you have the environment, the whole curriculum that you need culturally speaking, then they will actually absorb all that uh, quite, quite quickly and not just know, but come to understand with concrete materials. Montessori was just a starting point for this educational system. Um, and it grew to, to more than just that. My parents were given then over 20 years. Conferences and uh, workshops in.
2: Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now.